Don't worry, listeners. No need to adjust your dial. This is Landline Radio. Welcome to the end of the dial at the end of the world. I'm the host, and we bring you stories too chilling and strange to be true. Right from the heart of towns where the lines between this world and the next connect. Stories from people just like you. For those long, dark, lonely nights driving down roads that never seem to end. We'll be here. And don't worry if you can't find us. We'll find you. Leyline Radio is from Dreamer Productions and can be found monthly exclusively starting in October on their Patreon feed. Follow the link in the show notes below to hear and enjoy. Actors to places. Thank you, places. It's time to exit stage death. Welcome back to Exit Stage Death. As always, I'm your co-host, Maddie Limerick. And I'm your other co-host, Emily Martinez. And these are the chilling true stories behind your favorite Broadway shows. Em, we're back again. We're back again. So, Em, you did Gainesville Ripper already as an episode. And so that was inspired, you know, that inspired Scream Mm -hmm. uh, and whatnot. We talked about it a little, but what are your relationships with horror as a genre? I liked how you said that, by the way. Horror as a genre. Can't be part of the bad bitch genre. Um, <laughs> genre. I, genre. It's a genre. Um, I, I, love, I love a thriller. Mm-hmm. But like horror, I, I don't have any people in my life, honestly, to watch with. Because... Mm-hmm. Um, so anytime I would watch horror stuff, I saw a couple of things like in the movie theaters for like, I feel like the community of seeing horror Mm -hmm. film in a theater, but like, I haven't really seen that many with that many people. Like I love an eighties like slasher flick because those are campy, Mm -hmm. but like, Mm -hmm. but like the more modern day horror stuff, like it kind of creeps me out. So you know what I do? This is what I do. (laughs) This is this is the most like this time in history's way of watching a horror thing. I will watch someone on YouTube watching it. You yes, know what I mean? Yes, like uh-huh. like I'll watch their reactions and I just get little clips and I'm like that's enough. Yep. yep. Yeah, I'm I'm the same way as somebody that's like recently gotten into horror. I there's certain the the problem is I love a cerebral thriller, but I don't like horror that's so cerebral that it's going to have me be paranoid and scared for the next week. So that's why I love I love to watch things with people for that reason. Like right. when the quiet when the quiet place came out, I was like, there's no way I can see this alone. Even in a theater with other people, like I have to see it with people I know. And it was kind of the same way. So it's it's very much a thing, but you know what I've noticed, and it's a little bit from this this podcast, but it's not even just true crime, but it's like theater people love horror. Like general theatrical people love horror. Why why do you think it's so popular with people who create theater? I think we're just striving to feel in any capacity. <laughs> like literally as you're speaking, I'm putting chocolate in my mouth to feel. Like I sorry, that's probably a disgusting sound. Let me just take a swig of water. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I think I think we just want to like feel um like a bolt of energy that you get with like mm-hmm. fear, like that mm-hmm. um what's it called? Adrenaline, like it's such an adrenaline rush mm-hmm. and I feel like <laughs> I don't know. I think I honestly I think we're just like I feel empty from this industry. I need to feel something and I guess it's going to be fear. <laughs> yeah. It's well, it's funny because like with the exception of some like mysteries, mm-hmm. cerebral horror or like horror isn't something super common in theater. Uh, though I will say the last time I was in London, I saw the exorcist on the West end. In a live theater experience, and I don't do demon shit well, and so that was a whole lot to fucking sit through. I really was going for the, like, tech theater of it, but when I tell you it was so fucking cool and scared the living shit out of me that when I was walking back to my hotel uh, in Earl's Court from Piccadilly, it was like, ah, this is too much. I can't. I cannot. I cannot. I cannot. But, you know, over the last 30 years or so... We've had many, many films that have been adapted into musicals and pieces of theater. Some have been absolutely amazing, like Tommy, Mary Poppins, and one of my favorites, Legally Blonde. And some have been not so great. And I'm not going to name them because we don't need any enemies of the pod just yet. But (laughs) M, today's episode is a 1988 attempt at a musical adaptation of a hugely popular Stephen King horror film. So today we are talking about Carrie the Musical. And I want to just preface that today, today's episode and the next episode are not about true crime. They're horrific in their own ways. We are talking about Broadway flops and why they happen and kind of some of our favorite flops. And just because to me, there is always some sort of criminal aspect whether it's artistic or money or something that just makes a show not happen now i would argue the show you're going to talk about and we'll let that happen next week uh is actually criminal in very many oh, ways yeah There's, someone went yeah. to jail because of it there's fake deaths and you're like what's yep. happening <laughs> but i would say mine is so interesting to talk about because it's prolific in a way that most musicals like m- I've seen a fair share of shows die quickly when I was living in New York. I mean, I Mm -hmm. worked on 13, like the show lasted three months and it died. And then people only know it if you did it at, you know, a Jewish sleepaway camp or your high school did it. Like, which I will say is a, it's a bop. That song is so good. I was well, so the trailer came out. This will probably come out about the same time the movie is coming out on Netflix, 413, actually. Um, but yeah, I was watching the trailer and I got so excited that I had to listen to the original Broadway cast recording because it's it just really good. <laughs> it's really good. Just like the kids are teenagers. They're real and a lot of them, it was like their third or fourth show. So like they were they were hoofers. Like listen, <laughs> they have more credits than most people ever will. <laughs> I'm I'm not gonna say I'm jealous, but like like, I kind of hate all of them. <laughs> no, <I'm kidding. laughs> Flops are so interesting because now with the internet, there is a fan base for everything. I mean, let's look at Beetlejuice just as an example really quickly. Like, 
Beetle Juice is like an iconic film franchise that like in theory you're like oh the film is really musical there's actually a musical montage in it Tim Burton films are inherently feel musical without being musicals mm -hmm. um but you know it's just the business of Broadway and with tourists and things, you can't always guarantee your show's gonna sell or that your show's gonna become popular enough before your producers decide they wanna stop paying rent on a very expensive Broadway theater. So there's just really something to think about. And a lot of shows die before they have the chance to, to kind of blossom. And there are shows that like regional theaters don't necessarily do or things, but because of the internet, a lot of things are living beyond their life on the brood way. I mean, look at Be More Chill. Like it developed yeah. a huge cult following that then destroyed the show <laughs> because they like changed the show so yeah. much when it was leaving New Jersey and everything that it just didn't work anymore. But like, so this is going to be kind of the archetype of the modern flop musical that kind of is inspired historiography of musical theater in a modern text utilization for a lot of people so we'll get into it so the musical is based on the 1976 film by the same name starring sissy spacek and piper laurie the story follows an outcast girl whose home is a nightmare due to a religiously oppressive mother leading carrie to feel alienated from her peers and bullied and so she develops telekinetic powers this culminates when as a joke she wins prom queen and she is covered in pig's blood dropped from the rafters by two peers who are not allowed at the prom carrying her powers wreak havoc on her fellow peers and ends up with the death of her mother herself and kind of everyone except sue uh just thinking about the story and the dramaturgical needs for it I can't imagine at any point sitting down and saying, yes, this is a story we need to turn into a musical. Like I just, <laughs> there are certain things that work on the scope of film because one film gets, you know, 10 times the budget is theater. And so it's, I just, I can't imagine sitting down at some point and going, girl, you know what we need? A Carrie musical, especially in like the eighties. Yeah. But I mean, we, you know, uh, we're that we're living in the time of Starlight Express, Phantom, Cats, these mega musicals, Les Mis yeah. even. And so the show was written by Lawrence D. Cohen with Dean Pitchford on lyrics and music by Michael Gore. The project started when Cohen sat through a 1981 production of Alban Bear's opera Lulu. So in that aspect, I then go, okay, I get it. Because this does feel very much, I almost would rather see an opera of Carrie than a musical. Just because I, of the scale of opera? Yeah. There's probably more money behind it, too. Oh, much more. I mean, if you've ever seen a production of The Ring Cycle or anything Wagner did at, at any major opera company, you'll just know. Yeah. Now, Cohen wrote the screenplay for the film of Carrie. <laughs> so this is an example where he went, let's do it again. So he was really interested in revisiting material because of this opera. Um now, Cohen brought on Gore to work on the show, and Gore brought on his collaborator, Pitchford. Now, Gore and Pitchford, you might know from a little musical called Fame, uh, both the movie and TV show. They are the Gotta spirits behind that. Uh, and so they kind of had their finger on what they thought was the pulse of, like, young musical America, if mm -hmm. you will. And so they got together. They were able to write act one in those, you know, two years. And in 1984, they presented a workshop of the first act in New York at one or at 804 Broadway, which is right in Times Square, uh, starring Annie Golden as Carrie, uh, right? And that would have been right after she played Jeannie in the hair movie and Maureen McGovern oh. as Mrs. White. Okay. 
Okay. And shortly after this, it was announced that Carrie would take her crown on Broadway in 1986. But funding was never raised and secured until late in 1987. So we're sitting there. I mean, and this happens all the time. So yeah. when I was in New York, this is when Spider-Man was like coming to terms, like coming around. And it's also when a Batman musical was written and being performed in workshops. And everybody was certain Batman would make it to Broadway before Spider-Man did. And it was a weird oh, fucking God. time. It was a <laughs> weird time. I mean, this was, you know, this was also like. What a time to be alive. Night. <laughs> I mean, it was as next to normal was opening. Shrek was getting workshops. Adam's family was getting workshops. Xanadu was on Broadway. You know, Rock of Ages was coming, but we also had like Billy Elliot coming from the West End. It was a really strange time. And we yeah. were just like, you know, at that, you know, that same point, it was just, you know, that we're, it's just a, a very weird moment uh, in, in musical history. And that's also like, Right after the heaviest part of the musical film adaptation was happening, Legally Blonde had been successful. Mm -hmm. So that was when we started seeing all these movies suddenly becoming musicals. Uh, so the show would be produced by Frederick Kurtz and England's Royal Shakespeare Company. And they were planning to launch a four-week run in 1988. Now, this is where, in many ways, all the problems with the show start. Now, according to a write-up from Onstage Blog, which didn't have an author, so Onstage Blog, get on that. The <laughs> 1980s were a time... We love you, though. We love you, Onstage Blog. We love you. We love you, Onstage Blog, so, so much, so much. Uh, the 1980s were a decade of bombastic, fantastic musicals that, while enjoyable, were admittedly more spectacle than substance. Now, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, because, like, I feel like Les Mis is a ton of substance, but, like, whatever. Um... Yeah. And I feel like Into the Woods is a substance, but Into the Woods also I don't consider a spectacle musical. But, I mean, you've got, like, oh, well, we'll get to it. And, you know, well, you've got the melodrama like Phantom of the Opera and yeah. the plot light but dance-heavy cats. They lend themselves to this kind of type of storytelling, but the horror of Carrie is contingent on intimacy and familiarity. Put plainly, conceiving Carrie as a mega musical killed any chance the show had of exceeding long before the questionable costumes and effects could ever start. It was a huge space. Like when you, the bootlegs are readily available. I'm going to reference them a lot because when I was at AMDA, we were one of the few places you could find a hard copy easily of mm. a bootleg. Um, and it is massive. When I tell you it rivals most of like what large musicals of today, like even like the Lord of the Rings musicals and stuff that were just so big, so massive. This rivals a lot of that. So it was decided that resident artistic director of the RSC, Terry Hands, would helm the horror monolith. But this was alarming to many people because he had never directed a musical before. So you've got a brand new musical <laughs> with, with someone who is a very capable director. He has an incredible legacy in his own career with the RSC. He was the artistic director. You know, this happens a lot when a company is willing to put up a show. The artistic director gets it. But like, this is how I feel about musicals that are being adapted into movies right now. So it's kind of the reverse. Why are we letting people with no experience in a genre lead these giant fucking musical films? Like, I'm sorry, like Guy Ritchie had no business directing Aladdin. Like, even yeah. though it worked at points, John Chu had no business directing In the Heights and he has no business directing Wicked. Like, it's just one of those things that occasionally they are knocked out of the park. Like, Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. But yeah. Spielberg has 50 years in the industry. You know, he also 
gets credit for a lot of things that other people's decisions are made. But like you also had Paul Taswell designing costumes, who is a prolific theater designer. So it's one of those things. It's it's about who you surround yourself by. Mm-hmm. And it's why I feel like most movie musicals aren't good. With the exception of a few, like Dreamgirls is an incredible adaptation. But like yeah. even Rent with Christopher Columbus, who is known as a kids movie writer, like come like rent in its some aspects of the rent movie are actually incredible because having the backdrop of of new york but it's even like uh, hairspray it's mostly perfect like it's mostly a really good musical film like from a directing standpoint but you know it's still just those things but again you had people who had made musical theater on broadway before but you know what i'm good i'm good i'm good it's it's fine it's fine it's i'm fine as jason robert brown would quote i'm um Fine. I'm fine. I'm totally Give me a day, Jamie. <laughs> so we'll talk about a messy musical film that I really I, enjoy. <laughs> I know. I haven't seen it yet. Ooh. I've been well, told one of the, not to, but I'm like, one I'm of the listen. One of the big things with it is Jeremy Jordan's tracks are sweetened while Anna Kendrick's are not. Hers are all live singing tracks and Jeremy Jordan's are studio tracks and they do her fucking dirty in this movie. Mm. Also, he's not a good Jamie. She's a great, great Kathy. He is not a good Jamie because they're the right ages. That's the thing is like, oh, I could I could scream about last five years because they're also <laughs> bad people. Both Jamie and Kathy are terrible people who yeah. do not fight for their relationship. And, and they're just like whatever. shitty. <laughs> yeah, they're just Jam- shitty. Jamie also... Kathy gets to play Anita in West Side Story. Can we leave that narrative behind yeah, in absolutely. regional theater plays? So, getting back to Carrie. Sit down, Kathy. The pro- get down. Sit <laughs> the down, problems- Kathy. Ka- sit down, Kathy, at- on that dock where you're crying because you wore your costume sweater outside of the... Also, as a costume designer, she took her costume piece out of the dressing room to sit on a dock in Ohio. That dumb bitch. Sweetheart. That dumb bitch. <laughs> that dumb bitch. <laughs> so, so with Carrie, the problems continue as the design and planning meetings start with the team split between countries. Like, this is the mid-80s. So, like, conference calls are a thing. That's absolutely a thing. But, like... You know, when you've got your director is in the UK, but most of your designers are in the US, like it's just a thing. And he asked them what their tone or inspirations for the show were. And everybody responded, Greece. And Hand was delighted. What? But there but there is a problem here. Hand understood it as being influenced by Greek theater and the history of Greece. Oh my! While well, the team meant the Broadway musical. Oh my god! And this is the director who does has never done musicals before. Yes. Get see, the Muggles yes. out! Get the Muggles out! Get Sir, out! Sir, it's we're not doing Medea. This is not our time. Like, come on, my dude. Like, I just, ooey, yeah. I, it, I, <laughs> I, you know what, Manny? Absolutely not to that statement. Absolutely, Absolutely not. not. <laughs> also to that design team, I get that Greece had been dominating New York for all of the 70s, but it had closed at this point. The movie had come out, I think it was 79 when the movie came out. The show had already been open and closed. I mean, it ran forever. But like, there is no point reading or watching Carrie that I go, you know what says Carrie to me? A 1950s teen sex drama, like scene t- sex comedy. Like, that's totally on tone with Carrie. Absolutely, right? Like, I just. <laughs> but, like, but, like, 
the, the music slaps though. <laughs> Grease, the music slap. Listen, Grease is the word. Grease is the word. But you know what sucked Grease live? So many things. <laughs> but I love that movie. I unironically watched that movie about four times a year. Because Stalker Channing's, there are worse oh, things I could do. She's also she's glorious. And also, also, why are they all 40 years old playing teenagers? Why are they all 40 <laughs> years old? Oh, and Didi Khan as Frenchie. Uh, but like, also, I mean, but like, you can't tell me John Travolta, like, you can't tell me that Danny Zuko and Kaniki are not hot, hot, hot in that movie because they are hot, hot, hot. Oh, and hot, hot, why hot. I like toxic men. I hate it. I hate it so much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So it was said you could feel Han's inspiration throughout the whole show. And I want to know what point the design team realized they were fucked. Because, like, a design process for most shows, you're starting, like, six months to a year out from the show. And so, like, I want to know what that first meeting where everybody turned in renderings that looked nothing like Greek theater, like... To then end up where they said the costumes were mostly white. The sets were white. A lot of all the athletic costumes felt like togas. Everything felt layered. There was lots of like, if there was color, it was purple. And things that would like, you would expect from Julius Caesar or something, but not from That's Carrie. So, that is so bizarre. And I'm looking these pictures up now. Yeah, we're also talking like Stark sets. Like, and like, it's a giant space. So Stark sets, columns, lots of white. And I'm sorry, white doesn't always play well on stage. Um, and so with the production being split between both the US and the UK, they auditioned with two different creative teams in two different countries. So you have different people giving different feedback and making different calls in the, in the audition rooms. And so they were run so completely different that it started a conflict and dissonance between the two groups from the moment they got to the UK for rehearsal. Oh my God. The cast was consistently overworked and were consistently frustrated. The UK based artists come from a very formal trained background. Mm -hmm. So even if you do musical theater there, you have a Shakespeare. I mean, it's anytime we look at British actors and go, wow, they are so good in film. Why are they so good? And it's just like, because they started in theater, but it's also why you got people that are so massively famous who will go back and do a West end show or do a show at the national. They'll do Edinburgh fringe. Like just because they go back to film because it's where they start or uh, theater because it's where they started. But of course you go to film because it's where the money is. Right. The Americans at the time, because they were a younger group, they were legitimately in their young twenties and they American theater at this point had kind of turned a lot of the formal training on its head and they were leading a very informal technique and an informal approach. So it really clashed. Now, this is where we introduce our choreographer, whose name is Debbie Allen. Very well known. I mean, fame. They pulled her in oh, because yeah. they loved working with her on fame. She was becoming a huge star, not just in theater, but in pop culture because she starred in the TV show film. She starred in the movie. Well, the movie, then the TV show. She had just starred as Charity in, in an all POC production of Sweet Charity in the 80s. Awesome. That boomed on Broadway. I have the vinyl of it. She's not the best singer, but like you don't have to be for charity. It's one of those, it's like a Sally Bowles where she just kind of turned it the fuck out. That is one of my, I think it might yeah. be my favorite version of Hey Big Spender. 
And so she was a star on the rise among young audiences because they were just starting to think about theater demographics in a way that they hadn't up until the end of the 70s, where it was your rich white people who still wore suits and dresses to come to the theater and shows were at 8.30 still because you would go to dinner and wear fur and all these things. But they were starting to tap in the young audiences that were starting to dominate media in other ways. So like in many ways, Carrie walked in a way so that like Spring Awakening could eventually soar. There were these Mm -hmm. shows where Mm -hmm. they were trying to tap into a new audience while also adhering to the previous theater audience. Mm -hmm. And so the choreography tapped into the emotion of the show and not about being like, and a one, and a two, and a three. It's very much if you've ever heard a choreographer that's like, and a ship, and a pa, and a hit, and a goo. All cat, right, we're going to do it one cat, more time. Cat. Yeah, yeah, chicka-pra, chicka-pra. That you know, it's ma- one of those things. <laughs> that's making me think of that like line in making of the band with Danny D. Kane when she's just like, too much. It's too much neck. <laughs> yeah. She's like, it's not I, this, this. <sighs> Oh God, that that show! I love Danny DeCane. I still stand by Danny DeCane. I love them. Oh, absolutely. Love them. Absolutely. Uh, so it was a lot of like pelvis and emotion and like again, I believe Debian has the Ailey background as well, so I'm sure a lot of that pulled from it. Mm-hmm. And the UK cast members were to this huge handicap when they were trying to adapt because again, all of their training is so formal. And a lot of this is like, it would change in the second and it would be about the motion and connecting. And she would just, the way I, I understand how she kind of instructed was difficult. So because of the way that Frederick Kurz was as a person who is the main money producer behind it, he filmed everything. Production meetings, mm-hmm. rehearsals, shows, fittings, everything was filmed, which is kind of cool to think about because now I love the idea of like documenting theater. Yeah. And you know, so there is a lot of this footage of Alan in the rehearsal room and it exists. It is out there. You can find all of this. And she's just screaming sloppy, fucking sloppy and show something better. Like just making them create so much on their own. And like that really just kind of ripped the room apart. And so Broadway veteran Barbara Cook was hired to play Margaret White and newcomer Lindsay Hatley, uh, along with uh, Darlene Love, Charlie D'Ambrose, uh, were brought in to, to star in the show. Cook was, Cook had had a really long, hard life at that point. She, I mean, because most people know her from like Music Man, where she played Mary in the Librarian. Like she is a prolific performer. And had a huge struggle with alcohol and addiction and so became a cabaret artist for its 60s and 70s and was trying to like sober up and re-legitimize her career in the 80s. And she is an incredible instrument, but as anybody knows, if you drink and have a lot, you know, addiction problems, it kind of eats away at your instrument. Mm -hmm. And so Cook was really struggling through the rehearsals. Her songs were so high and shrill and screamy that in all this rehearsal footage, she would just, you could just hear her going, oh, it's so high, it's so high. And she's cracking and cursing. And poor Hatley, who is just holding her hand and encouraging her and be like, you got this, you can do this. And it's just so hard to watch. Like it's, it's just, it's kind of a really insane thing. So I talked about the tech aspects being big. 
but this tech, this show technically was one of the most advanced, if not the most advanced of the time. Cause like we're thinking Phantom is huge at this point. Like, yeah, you know, the chandelier, the sets, they're, they're stunning. They're gorgeous. They're beautiful. And they had this giant light rig that could go up and down a massive automated set pieces, along with a massive white staircase that was lowered in for the final scenes of the show. And the staircase was so big that the lighting grid had to move down and then pivot forward towards the audience so that the stairs could fit down through it. Uh, and that was set up kind of for the finale of the musical with Carrie with the blood and all these things. Um, and it caused some of the biggest strife during the tech process in Stratford. One of the most notable being that the crew couldn't douse Hatley in enough blood quick enough without shorting out her microphone. So yeah. you had carry, you would carry with no blood. Like it was a thing that they just went, it couldn't happen. And I know they even dealt with this in the revival of yeah. how do we get, you know, cause sound tech has come a very long way, but if anybody's been in a show with sweaty actors, you know, that microphones are still not impervious to fluid. Yeah. There's I've, I've watched a lot of clips of the revival and like, I've seen it done with, red lighting like mm-hmm. douse pools of red light or like the carries literally like put their hands like only above yeah. the mic mm-hmm. but i'm like it's still gonna fall <laughs> like that yeah. if it's coming to the top of your head it's still gonna come forward so yeah i don't know how yeah. there's any way to yeah in the revival they had the like you saw, it was like a you saw the shadow and the projection of it falling and it was light uh-huh. dousing her and then she ran off and then as soon as she ran off they put her in a booth and they covered her face and head and then i think they like threw it on her body and then she wiped the red down her face yeah and so it was one of those that that was kind of the best thing but even that was like 2012 so like who knows what we would do now um Let's but bring it back. With- I want to be in it. <laughs> Listen. Oh, well, I want to be in that fucking. I know like, so, yeah. I know like everything you're saying. I'm just like, mama, please. Like, I, I fucking love it so much. <laughs> oh, oh, Eve was weak is one of my favorite songs from this show. And it's anytime awesome. you, you know, you know, I love a good drag queen. And there is this amazing drag queen named Eve star in New York who would perform Eve was Week all of the time. And it was the greatest thing that could happen uh, at the now defunct, the, oh no, therapy's still there. Therapy's the only bar still there. But she would perform at Psychobabble with Mimi Ann first and it would be amazing. And I, that is actually how I kind of learned about Carrie. It was so amazing. Shout out to Eve Star, uh, so amazing. My um, favorite song is I Remember How the Boys Would Dance. It's so dramatic. Uh, yes. I love it. So dramatic. And Margaret, what they really amp up Margaret White in the show, like, yeah. really amp her up now with the tech issues the script and score were massively be re- being rewritten and reworked daily Oof. the program even noted songs that would never ever actually be heard by an audience oh my god so the opening of the show was so eagerly awaited and on opening night the british audience responded with polite applause in the way that the brits do oh no that makes me cringe so much yep oh yeah it was it. a very Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, oh mm-hmm. oh that's awful and on that opening night there was an almost fatal accident on stage involving <gasps> the white staircase almost decapitating barbara cook oh my god so she walks off stage and resigns from the show good for her <laughs> but she did 
but they did get her to agree to stay until an adequate replacement could be found and rehearsed. But because it was a literal four-week run, she stayed for the entirety of the show. Now, it has been said that because she was quite the problem during the show, no one will confirm. I guess her and her people were able to get it out that she was quitting the show first. Mm-hmm. So we don't know if she was fired from the show, what happened, but I know they said that it was quite catastrophic and it almost decapitated her. Anytime you read about the show, this is the one thing that is consistent between all the articles is that she was almost decapitated and wanted to fly out immediately that evening. I think a lot of it had to do with it. Like mm-hmm. she didn't give a great performance. She was having a rough time. Um, and the pyro in the, in the finale of the show could never seem to fire properly. And That's scary. unfortunately, yeah, well, or it just didn't fire at all. Like it didn't go off. And there were also lasers because this is the time of like laser light show. Like I mm-hmm. like to tell everybody, think Voyage of the Little Mermaid from Hollywood Studios done a yeah. Disney world. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, and so everybody found it anticlimactic because when you've got a film of this size and, and of such a well-known status, everyone's going to compare it to the film and it just never loved, lived up to expectations. Now, I will say the critics were not as polite as the audience, but it honestly is consensus that they didn't feel positively or particularly negatively to the show. But due to word of mouth, the entire four-week run of the show sold out almost instantaneously. Mm. And because people were, like, fighting over tickets. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry, everyone. I have been hydrating so much because my my trainer is telling me I have to. So when I tell you I'm drinking about 190 ounces of water a day (laughs) and I ate just before this. Oh, my God. I love you so much. Oh, God. Oh, God. Okay. So people were fighting over tickets. It was a mess. So it was decided immediately that the show wouldn't do another out of town. It would move straight to Broadway at the cost of $8 million, which was more or less unheard of at the time. Yeah. So this roughly equals $21 million in today's money. Just to give you a perspective, Wicked cost $14.5 million when it opened in 2003, which is only at about $18 million now. Um, but $21 million is exactly what Phantom of the Opera cost the year before. So... You know, okay, it's a thing. and and haven't you said before that Phantom of the Opera made that money back like pretty quickly? Oh, in like a year, and so those maybe producers they were thinking, have yeah. Oh, we'll mm-hmm, do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, now, so the RSC immediately came under critique for using arts funds from government subsidies, which is an amazing part of the UK. Yeah. I will say, like the fact that it is publicly subsidized theater. The National Theater does amazing work, but even their commercial theater is publicly uh, like subsidized. Um, that they did it on purpose to develop and fund a Broadway transfer without going through the necessary channels through the government. I don't know whether it was that way or not, but like they chose very quickly to move it. But like this was also yeah. the time where everything was moving from London to New York and the RSC really wanted to get in on that, I guess. I mean, since then Matilda has come from the RSC, which I love. A lot of their productions have come just because Mark Rylance is their creative or their artistic director currently. So like a lot of their productions will end up over here. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the cast was retained with the show, which is kind of unheard of now because uh, UK equity versus 
Actors' Equity in America. They're they like to be sister unions, much like Canadian uh, Equity, until they're not, which we just saw with all this Paradise Square bullshit. Yeah. Um, which we will hit at a later point, I'm sure, um, that the unions only support each other when they need to. Because now you have to trade a UK equity member for a US equity member in order to bring one or the other over. It's really fucking weird. I'm sorry. And it doesn't have Are to, these it, prisoners of fucking war? What the fuck? Well, and it doesn't, it doesn't even have to be in the same show, but it's just between the unions because then they have to join the other union. I don't, I don't That's fucking so, know. This union needs but to I get mean, shit together. Well, let's be honest. Anybody can join Actors Equity now. Literally, your aunt with one commute with one. She got paid a hundred dollars to play Donna in Mamma Mia at a dinner theater. She can join Actors Equity now, but that's none of my business. I want to say that that was the, probably the funniest day on social media last summer. Oh my god! And it was literally like exactly a year ago. I was like, like y'all are. Y'all are showing your asses. Just shut mm-hmm. up. You're still getting mm-hmm. your fucking roles. Like. Let people mm-hmm. join the union if they want. It's all messed up anyway. Like, oh my God, the amount of people being like, well, they haven't earned their t- their turn. And I'm like, sit down, Barbara, sit down. It's it's like, you've been abused for 20 years, sweetheart. This is the thing. It's like, let's be honest. They have no, they have no experience. So, you know, Bernie Telsey's not going to give them a freaking appointment. They're going to sit in a line hoping to get seen at the, at the equity building. Uh, you know, it's just one of those things. It's like, it doesn't inherently all of our mean self, anything yeah. else. All of our yeah, self-tapes like, are still going into the abyss. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Some intern is still going to sort through all of them because they're agreeing to work for Telsey and company for nothing but a Metro card for three months. No, I'm not exaggerating. Why have we not tackled the abuse of interns in casting and through all the theater organizations yet because yeah. I would anybody listening at home that worked for one of the, the casting companies in New York and got paid nothing, but was expected to live in New York and be at work 60 hours a week. Please let us know how that felt. Let us know. I would, we would love to have that conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, Lindsay Hatley did get brought over. And so all of the UK cast members uprooted their life and were moved to New York quickly. Betty Buckley would replace Cook as Margaret White. And this is a fun bit of casting outside of her as an incredible Broadway legend, Grizabella, Norma Desmond, like just, Huge things. Mm-hmm. Because she played Miss Collins, the teacher in the Carrie film in 1976. That's wild. I just, I just, I love, I love a little stunt casting. Cause like when it's Betty Buckley, it's like, how is that possible stunt casting? Like yeah. if anybody saw her in the Hello Dolly tour last year, like you should thank the gods. Like she's so talented. Like she's just amazing. I love her. She's so wonderful. But the marketing was overwhelming and pervasive among New York's five boroughs. Like, think above Shenyun level marketing. Like, beyond. No way. No way. TV spots, subway spots, taxi cabs, posters. And the poster was gorgeous. It's literally all black with, like, a wave of red water as her hair with a line and a red tear. And then it just said Carrie in white letters. It is, I'm going to post it on social media. It is beautiful. It, it is now. still one of, it's one of my favorite theater marketings of all time. Like, it is just so beautiful. And it just was across the five boroughs. And they led with the marketing phrase, there's never been a musical like her. And never and her were in caps. And so oh. the audiences were losing their fucking minds. 
because there hadn't been a large scale piece of theatrical horror since Sweeney Todd, which was like gangbusters at the time when it was running. So may I, may I say this? Yes. This, um, I'm looking at the ad now. It's very Greek. It's very Greek. It is very what I expect out of a Medea poster, which again, makes a ton of sense. Like it just makes a Mm -hmm. ton of, ton of, ton of sense. Yeah. Uh, So the rehearsal started and opening of previews quickly approached. The entire show was overhauled and deviated from its original sound even to sound more young and modern for the audiences that they wanted to get. And so they gave it a pop rock sound. Entire keys of songs were changed and reorchestrated. Entire numbers were cut and reworked. Now, M. Yes. What do you feel is a realistic amount of time between closing a show out of town Mm-hmm. in another country even and opening previews on Broadway with a full rehearsal period in there. Like what I think it should be. Yeah. What do you think a like legitimate normal amount of time would be between like even, even keeping the whole cast, like to get everyone moved to a new city, get set up, rework the show, re-rehearse the show, get it into a theater and rehearse it in an amount of time that is safe with this amount of tech. Right. Um, because usually a show wouldn't mm-hmm. go from like the West End straight to Broadway. It would go from the West End to like Boston or to DC mm-hmm. first, work out the kinks, and then move it on mm-hmm. up. So I would say at least a Broadway season or six months at least. Mm-hmm. I know it's oh, not going to be that, <laughs> but I mean, I, that's what I, mean, I would let's, say. I mean, let's be honest. When they announced that six was coming, it yeah. had been playing in London for three years. It played Chicago. Then it played Chicago again. Then it played Boston. Then it played New York. Then COVID happened. Yeah. Like, you know, it's just a lot of those things are like even Poppins took a full year to come over. Most of the time, things just take time. Or it's even and Juliet is between when it opened in London three years ago. Mm-hmm. And then it just played Toronto. It's not opening until next year, the like the end of next season in New York. Oh, so like, yeah, that's a while. So, you know, well, let me tell you, previews in New York started eight weeks from the day of closing in England. That, eight weeks. That's insane. Eight weeks. That's Two so months. Stupid. To that's... move everyone, rewrite the show, rehearse the show, get into the fucking theater gonna be a no from me dog that's gonna be a no yeah, that's a no from me bro that's like i just no. imagine them going to the scene shops and going so this is what we need and so that they're they're trying to remake that whole set like that the whole set has to be rebuilt and re like re-situated because also the rsc is a small space so then it's got to go to a broadway size so we're talking new lighting new sound new rig new costumes like you know like the sh- I, I mean the shops the shops work magic but not that kind of magic like but no one seemed happy with the show on the creative team no public performance of the show was ever the same after the show started previews whole mm-hmm. songs were cut scenes were reworked this is typical for previews and so uh, a lot of the most notable moments of that is the song cracker jack which is tommy's one song in the show <laughs> um and it went from being this like song and dance number to a giant modern dance piece that called call called out for blood, which was nicknamed the pig song. And if you all have not watched this in the bootlegs, Oh baby, you need to because the ensemble men were walked out in gay sex gear on leashes. So all this was underdressed under their tuxedos for the prom scene. 
they were paraded around in pig noses and everything to talk about the pig's blood and stuff. I'm just going to let that sink in for a moment. That's. I'm going to, I'm just going to take a. Take a sip out of my cup. Just every, <laughs> every I'm like, I am a gog. I am a guest. Uh-huh. Marius is in love at last. What the fuck? <laughs> the goop, the gall, the gumption. I've never. <laughs> the Marius audacity. The audacity. M, one word, two words. Absolutely not. Or, or is it an absolutely yes? I don't know. <laughs> absolutely yes. Or red flags. Or red flags. I think that's a I red also flags go, of being like, I also go, how, how did you get fucking, I mean, granted it was New York in the 80s, so like Christopher Street, but like, how did you get like 18 people's worth of, because we're also talking, this cast had like 45 people in it. Yeah, that's a big cast. The ensemble was huge. So they like went out and just bought leather gear and like, we're talking jock straps, thongs, chaps. Like, gorgeous, rippling muscle dancer boys. Like, I'm not mad at it. I bet Christopher Street was pissed. They were like, you took all of our Everything. You took everything. St. Mark's Place. (laughs) Yeah. They went to every gay, like, fetish bar. Like, where? So, that's, you know. Oh, just. Zaddies were mad. Just speaking of absolutely not in red flags. Have you all gotten your shirt off our Teespring yet? You can get. It's a gorgeous. Lovely, lovely. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. But just make sure you go grab that. I'm just um, saying it's like it, it just it's great as like a sleep shirt. It's great as like, oh, like let's have a cute like hot girl walk mm-hmm. with only one headphone in. It's true. They're all a little oversized. So you can cuff the sleeve. You can even knot it at the bottom. It goes with everything. It can go with your hoochie mama, hoochie daddy shorts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, or your bike shorts. So you relieve your yourself of the chafe. It's so true. And it comes in extra small through 5XL and it comes from medium tall through 4X tall. So I thought of all the ladies and babies and babies and the straight guys can have them too, I guess. It's fine. Available in white and gray. I love it. It's adorable. It's so good. So, So let's get back to Carrie. Preview started at the Virginia Theater on April 28th of 1988. And when that final curtain came down, the show was met with light applause and thunderous boos. They stood up and booed the fucking show every night. This wasn't even just that first night. It was every single night. I don't know what I would do. I'm so uncomfortable. I am wildly uncomfortable at the thought of that. Theater attendees of the time booing, like booing. But it turned to th- it turned to thunderous applause when Buckley and Hartley came out for their bows because okay. the two of them were transcendent and really molded the show because there are like four or five pinnacle scenes of the show that are yeah. just their kind of their relationship, their scenes together. I mean, Eva's week with Margaret White in that fucking white uh, nightgown and just ripping Carrie's head around, just amazing. But the work wasn't done. And because of the ever-changing versions of the show, the cast would rehearse for 12 to 16 hours a day before each performance, even though the actors' equity rules of the time only permitted 8 to 12 hours of a week of rehearsal. 8 to 12 a week. That's insane. Once you are in previews. 
talk about why we need unions, but also why did the union not step in? I mean, this is also equity of the 80s. So like equity now is very different and they're still not doing their job. Calling you out on actors' equity. But true. That's a, that's like, how do you feel safe in that environment? You don't. It's true. Like you're doing Debbie Allen choreography over and over and over again. Like I just think about like how much stress that put on their voices, on their body. Like how were they supposed to give a good fucking show? Like I just and yeah. also and don't your come entire... and tell me yeah and don't come and tell me that Broadway performers are not fucking athletes because those are the only Thank types you. of people that can do that t- shit Thank and like you. go out for a drink and be like get me fucked up because mm-hmm. I don't want to remember mm-hmm. anything I just had to do. <laughs> I mean, let's also be honest. This is the time where cocaine was single-handedly fueling Broadway. So mm-hmm. like here we are, um, but like with this kind of shit, I could see that. I could see why you need it, but it's also your technicians. Like every time you have a dr- like a uh, work during the day, if costumes are involved which i'm sure they were your dressers have to be there light and sound have to be there because you're not going to run a rehearsal during the day during previews without sound on like fuck that's like everyone in the space plus the interns the assistant directors like there are just so many people being so overworked for something that nobody has the balls to say this isn't working yeah like like this just makes me so sick like i <laughs> Like, it was just some of the most demanding vocals and choreo on Broadway at the time. Like, Les Mis was huge in its scale. Phantom was huge in its scale. But again, it was a classic technique of voice. Yeah. Where this was something so different. Um, this will make we your, d- your vocal cords will yeah. bleed if you're not singing correctly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and they're literally just having the shit beaten out of them. Yeah. Like, also think about this. You're already alienated from the rest of your cast. Like, there is a division between the UK cast and the British cast. The American cast is, like, all in their element. The British kids, literally, at, like, 22, have been moved to New York. All they have is each other. They're in a city doing a show that they probably hate at this point. Mm -hmm. But, like, they're working. And so, like, it's just one of those things. Like, how do you not just feel at the absolute bottom of your soul. Like how do you get excited to get up and go to work when you're playing dress up and it should be fun? Like I just, but you're being treated like absolute garbage. Yeah. Absolute garbage. So after 16 previews opening night finally came and even 16 previews to me does not sound like that long. Like most shows now have a three to four week preview process. Mm -hmm. Like, Because some things change often or sometimes you just need to get stuff right. But when opening night finally came, and I tell you the critics weren't kind, would be an absolute understatement. So I'm going to read two of my favorite. Uh, So if chess slides into its final scene as solemnly and pompously as the Titanic, then Carrie expires with fireworks like the Hindenburg. True, the fireworks aren't the greatest. The intended Stephen King pyrotechnics wouldn't frighten a Mai Tai drinker at a Polynesian resort. Oh, this oh. was from Frank Rich. Oh. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, or my absolute favorite is Stephen King's Carrie has turned into a horror of a musical. Carrie is a catastrophe. I've seen better special effects from a Cracker Jacks box. <laughs> Cracker Jacks. <laughs> Cracker Jacks is getting all like all the promo. The sales for Cracker yep. Jacks went up. Like Ben Brantley wouldn't even like come on. <laughs> like, the shade. Uh, then, oh, oh, the real shade is in England. This was called an embarrassment. Ah, uh, how understated the English are. <laughs> but I bet that hurts so much. I bet it the did. Brits were like, oh. 
It did. But you know what's also funny is a lot of these things happened to like the hair cast in in 71 when they were finally up for a Tony Award. Mm-hmm. Um, like Ethel Merman and Zero Mostel stood on stage to introduce them and mocked them for 15 minutes that they then had to turn around and do Walking in Space live in front of everyone. Like, which, is, which was a great, guys. which was a great performance, by the way. Great performance. You can see Diane Keaton of all people is in that. Uh, like, there's just so many people uh, in that. But we'll talk about hair in a couple weeks. Uh, you know, these were just a few of the standout ones that I saw, and it's a shame that many newspapers hide older views behind their paywalls. I'm looking at you, New York Times. I'm looking at you. Yeah. So despite the callous things that were said about the show, every review praised Cook and Hatley for their incredible performances. And today I would say that even, I mean, spoiler alert, they didn't run long. Like, I feel like even today, like the Drama League, Drama Desk, Outer Critics, and Tonys would find a way to nominate good performers in bad shows. It happens all the time. I mean, look what just happened with Paradise Square. You know? Wait, you know. quick question. Was it Betty yeah. was it Betty Buckley in the Broadway? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, it was Buckley. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. It was Buckley. Uh, that I was, was like, a- Cook is back? Yeah. Bitch is back? No, that was me. <laughs> sorry, that's me. No, so it was Buckley and Cook. Yeah. <laughs> Buckley and Hatley were um, praised. Um, I have Betty Buckley. I believe they were both nominated and won the Drama Desks or Drama League, whatever uh-huh. it was that year. There is actually so much footage of the show available between rehearsals, videos, actual recordings taken from the audience of the show, which is just wild to me. So something that was noted by many is that at its core, the show was never delivered on the horror that was promised because the reworked story didn't have any horror in it. It focused on teen drama and an abuse story of operatic proportions. Mm. Though it was noted uh, by the Broadway World article from Drew Eldridge that the aspects of the show that should have fallen on its face, mainly the massive abuse of Carrie by Chris and her mother, mother, Margaret White, were featured and given nuance and depth while the parts of the show centered around Carrie's powers and the ensuing mass extinction of her class never fully delivered. With reviews in... The producing team made a very quick decision to swallow their losses and close the show before any damage could be done to their reputations. So Carrie closed after 16 performances and five, 16 previews, five regular performances over three days. So it literally ran two, two show days and a one show day. And at the time was Broadway's most expensive and quick to close flop. I believe Spider-Man has since taken the mantle of most expensive flop because I believe that ended up costing 90 million at the end of everything being said and done. Uh, But even that ran for like a year, year and a half. I think it ran 16 or 17 months. Now, no matter matter how much it hobbled that ran, it was like now. Yeah. Well, it's the Russian tourists loved it. Anybody that loved Cirque went to see Spider-Man, but it's also because people in the third iteration, when it finally opened and everything, people wanted to see people were mad when there wasn't an injury or a disaster during the Spider-Man performance. And all I have to say is fuck those people. You know, most musicals fall out of pop culture lexicon after it closes, but Carrie in its prolific failure stayed as a talking point throughout all of musical theater history and even pop culture history. I know in 2007, when I moved to New York to go to AMDA, 
every theater person over a certain age swears they were at one of the performances or knew someone in the cast. It's just like, I'm going to call out my generation of musical theater performers that lived in New York. Everybody was in big or everyone was in ragtime. Everybody says their best friend was, but they go by a different performance name now. So it can't be found. But I was like, listen, your name and your performance names are all listed through Playbill Vault and none of y'all were in big and none of you were in ragtime. I'm just calling you out here get wrecked um <laughs> but well Maddie just is like coming when, for all of your throats today i'm coming for all of your wigs i'm snatching wigs wig, in here today wig wig but yeah that's just uh, it's just the thing don't lie about your credits friends do not lie about your credits because the internet is a dark place where you can find everybody's secrets also also if you th- just like think of the think of the true crime sleuths out there that find out everything about the theater like the theater kid sleuths are even stronger. Yeah, it's true. Well, because it's also that Venn diagram of of true crime and theater kid, the like theater sleuths and true crime sleuths. It's a circle. It's not a Venn diagram. It is a circle. Because guess what? Most of us have ADHD too, and we're putting all of those so things together. And it's, it's like, true. Everybody, everybody's got a digital red string. Oh yeah, I was like, I was like, I got a red from, string behind me. <laughs> yep, from an ADD uh, spiral at midnight one night. But I will say, one of my Literally dance instructors me last at. Night. Yeah, one of the dance instructors at AMDA, I did not have him. He was in the cast of mm-hmm. Carrie, which was why we had a bootleg of Carrie in the AMDA library. Um, but because of its failure, no licensing company at the time picked it up for licensing. Wow. So it wasn't possible to do a legal production. But M, you and I know theater kids. Mm-hmm. So where there is a will, there is a way. There is a way. Uh, in 1999, would you like to guess? Oh no! What New York theater staple did an illegal production of Carrie? Okay, okay. okay centered okay. for younger people, Stage Door Manor <laughs> in New York. <laughs> the bo- <laughs> You know what I, re- you know what I really like to think about it. Uh, what, what uh, just part of me? I know we're sure we could find the cast, even though no video of this production has ever surfaced. But that was about the time that Leah Michelle was going there, like after, like when she was in Ragtime and stuff. Like she went to Stage Door Manor. Um, oh, because that just happened. Please don't. Um, uh, do you, I, I mean, I wonder if she was illiterate when she was in this production of Carrie at Stage Door Manor. I'm going to start that rumor. Did you know Leah Michelle was in a production of Carrie at Stage Door Manor in 1999? Did you know that Carrie played the bucket in, in the production of, she was the bucket that fell. She like held on the, the blood. blood. She was the bucket. On the blood. And the block. And Jonathan Groff was the rope that held her up. Because nobody else would. Oh, because nobody else will. <laughs> oh man, oh. this is gonna come out right after she replaces Beanie and and Julia in Funny Girl. So, but this is also recorded like two weeks after it was announced she was taking over, and then Jane Lynch announced that she would be leaving conveniently two and a half weeks early so she would not overlap with Leah. I know. I'm not saying there's a political reason because Jane Lynch then has said, of course, I just she's a she's a delightful girl. And when somebody calls you a delightful girl, it's a slur, it's slander. 
It's I, not anything it's nice. That's def- <laughs> defamation. It's a not no really. for me, dog. <laughs> allegedly. Allegedly. Allegedly, uh, allegedly, allegedly. Allegedly, allegedly. We're just kidding. Lee Michelle's not illiterate. Because she can I read your even, comments. I, know. I didn't even hear that. Like, I like... It's a TikTok creepy pasta. It's like Poot Lovato, but like <sighs> it's somehow believable because it's Leah Michelle. Oh dear God, um, she a mess. It's, but so there were two performances of Carrie done at Stage Door Manor in 1999, although I... completely unauthorized and technically illegal. Those at Stage Door Manor used the Broadway script and they reworked the ending, <laughs> much to. Get this, much to their surprise, Michael Gore attended the performance. (laughs) And while he spoke out against them producing the play without permission, he enjoyed the production and allowed them to complete the second show. Could you imagine being one of the adults? Oh, yeah. Well, and could you imagine being one of the adults that knows you're doing something fucking wrong? It's stage door managers like the most unethical of unethical things. Um, We'll unpack we, that in another I was going to say, we need to do an entire we, episode about stage. Yeah, because like, well, it's it's also just theater camps are like the most, the pay to play theater thing is just, ooh, we fucking privilege. Talk about white privilege. Uh, but everybody go watch the movie Camp. That movie slaps and it takes place at Stage Row Manor. There is no information about the circulation of these performances, but you know someone's fucking mom from Long Island has a goddamn video of this, and I ask you, please give it to us so we can confirm that Leah Michelle was in this production of Carrie, even though I know she wasn't. I feel like, like some she would let everybody know about that. Like Maddie, what is the what is the musical theater equivalent of like a conch shell from um, Lord of the Flies? Like, what would be our musical theater equivalent that we could be like every? Like theater nerds assemble. Like what? <laughs> Would oh, it be like uh, the waving of that that fucking that fucking cloak that has all of the no. the oh the gypsy robe or the gypsy what? Robe. I, oh I forgot I forget what they call it now. Yeah, no, you just scream it. You scream into a laduka that your dance teacher gave you. <laughs> no, it can't even be a laduka. It can't even be a laduka. It's got to be a capizio character capizio? shoe. Oh, it's got a capizio. Capizio. Oh, Capizzi hose. Oh God. Actual nightmare, like trauma of going into Capizio in the theater district, trying to find dance tights and shoes to fit my fat ass when I was in. Ooh, that's not fun trauma. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Also the smell in there was always gross. Oh, the smell. But Jeez. what I will tell you, I was never treated more nicely than when I went to get a pair of Leducas in my big old size when I was yes. doing the hairspray audition circuit. They were lovely, but it's also because you're paying so much fucking money. Go to that Leduca annual sale every year, friends. But you don't need a Leduca to do well in conservatory if they tell you that tell them to fuck off <sighs> so there were two other and i thought this one was going to be a quick in and out because it's a short <laughs> script on my end but we, we we're here long uh so there are two other notable illegal productions one at emerson college because of oh. course uh, and then one at gamal herup gymnasium in copenhagen denmark also checks out you know, just the events amazing. around, yeah, 
The, the events surrounding the show inspired a book that most theater students have read or needed to have for musical theater class at some point um, by Ken Mendelbaum called Not Since Carrie, 40 Years of Broadway Musical Theater Flops. Uh, it is an incredible book. It was one of our textbooks at AMDA that I never got rid of. It was so good. I encourage everybody to get it. And I hope they've, I want them to update it for like Spider-Man and the newer flops that we've had because we've had a ton. Uh, you can add Tootsie and Mrs. Doubtfire to that now. Um <laughs> Ooh, we. Uh, so no, no official uh, original cast recording exists of the Broadway or the run at the RSC, though some really great bootlegs exist, and I highly encourage everyone to go watch them. I will not, for legal reasons, put them on our social media, but reach out to us, and maybe we'll have a slime tutorial link for you. Please, the show closed 40 years ago. Nobody fucking cares. Um, in fact, right after the launch of YouTube in 2007 and 2008, this was like the first musical to have a large presence of clips of the show and rehearsals become quickly resurfacing. It was really fun. Uh, but I'm mad that no one at A24 or like Criterion has gathered all of those clips and videos together from, because you know somebody still has to have all of the footage somewhere or at least part of it. Cause why have they not created an actual documentary about this musical yet? Like this, like that just seems yeah. crazy to me or honestly at this point, create a docudrama about the creation and the, the plight of this musical. Cause that would be awesome. Like a Ryan Murphy style American crime story would be very yeah. cool. Uh, or an, or worry. the office for of, of like an office -like oh, version. That'd be so funny. Just everyone's that like would be, looking yeah. at the camera. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, that happens sometimes too. Like sometimes like things get said and people literally like you'll see some of the dancers with Debbie Allen look at each other and then look over at the camera and it is quite good. I need it to see that. Quite, I'm gonna watch that yeah. after this. Uh it's very center stage. If anybody's seen center stage, it's very that very that. Um but don't worry, everyone. All good things come back in time. And in 2012, I think it was 2011, actually, I uh, ran into 2012. MCC in New York uh, revived Carrie, uh, rejecting the giant spectacle of the original Broadway run and trading it for a modest Lower East Side theater space. Now, I saw this production and I hadn't seen something kind of this cool and fun and innovative before. Uh, that was based on something that had done so poorly. And it had a lot of the cast of Spring Awakening, a lot of like people like Jenna DeWall, who is now a Broadway mainstay, is in mm -hmm. that. Like it was really, really great. Carmen Cusack, Marin Maisie, rest her fucking soul, mm -hmm. was an incredible Margaret White. Her Eve was weak. They yeah. lit her from under uh, the end when she's like, ba -da, da 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 she was just like shaking and gasping and was just like hunched over and guttural. And it is incredible. <laughs> incredible. Daddy, I know someone that was in that production. <gasps> well, and we might need to get them on. Just, I could see. Oh, I could try. I was like, oh, but um, also I get what you're saying now. That's very funny. But also like, <laughs> I, I could see, I could ask her. <laughs> that, that would be lovely. Uh, though while it was much more well-received than the original with the reworking and modernization of the story, many still had issues with the new dissonance that was created by what remained of the original score with the new song. So they threw out about half the score, wrote brand new songs, oh. like Unsuspecting Hearts is beautiful. But then you also have things like a World According to Chris, which is my... Like it is up there with like candy store from Heather's and apex predator from mean girls of my least favorite fucking like angry white girl songs in the musical <laughs> theater canon that I wish would go away. But yeah, there was just this dissonance. Um, 
Meanwhile, I'm over here going like, the world is gonna kick them. Going to Korea. That's better to screw than get screwed. Yeah. But like, was it a bop in the moment? Yeah, absolutely. But like looking at it as a piece. Yeah, no, you're right. Now this version... This version is absolutely available for licensing and has been performed worldwide exhaustively over the last 10 years. I'm sure most of you have seen a low-budget production at your local community theater or college theater club, but many theater artists still have a problem with the disconnect between what the show does and what the show has the power to do. So I'm going to leave you with one more quote from Drew Eldridge and his Broadway World article. There's never been a musical like her. There has never been a musical like Carrie. With a certain amount of hope and education, there may never be again. (laughs) High, however, would love to see Carrie be given a cosmetic surgery it sorely deserves. There is an amazing sweeping score in there if only someone were to find it. To that person that eventually does, I hope many Tony Awards wait for you. And this has been the unfortunate rise and quick fall of Carrie the Musical, one of Broadway's most notorious and expensive flops. Brava! Bravissima! Thank you. Now, my sources for today's episodes, because we want to be informed, is Wikipedia, of course. Make sure you go and donate to Wikipedia. Keep them going. None of your podcasts that you listen to would exist without them. Truly. A Broadway World article by Drew Eldridge, a New York, the original New York Times reviews and their reviews database, an onstage blog article, Cult Oddities, a Nerdist article by Lindsay Romain, Roman, uh, Playbill Vault, Ken Mendelbaum's Nights Not Since Carrie book. So I just, I mean, well a flop almost, a flop almost seems like it is like every season we're going to have a couple flops. There was another show that opened roughly about the same. Oh, would open the next year. Uh, so it was off Broadway in uh, 1987. So right before this, and then it moved to Broadway uh, after a really nice long run on uh, on off Broadway, and then they did an out of town uh, at the American Stage Festival in 1988, getting it ready. Uh, and it's called Starmites, <laughs> which is about a girl who gets sucked into her comic book and meets uh, a group of heroes called the Starmites and an all female evil uh, roving rock goddesses called the Banshees. It is a terrible show, but Everybody, everybody knows somebody that's done a production. Now, the funny thing about it is in 1989, I don't know how many people know this, only four original musicals opened that year. Year of my birth. Yep. (laughs) So there were, oh, three. There were only three new musicals that opened that year. Only, uh, so uh, Jerome Robbins Broadway, a musical called Black and Blue and, and the Starmites were the only thing that opened new on Broadway that year. Wow. So everything got nominated for a best musical nomination. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. It feels very Aaron Tave and Chris McCarroll like two years ago when somehow Chris McCarroll still didn't get a nomination for Percy Jackson, even though he totally deserves it. And I love his TikTok if you haven't. But like this was just a really weird, weird, weird time. Yeah. Like, cause this was the same season, like plays were huge. Like mm-hmm. lend me a tenor open for the first time. Um, Mikhail Baryshnikov's production of Metamorphosis was running. So like the dance legend was starring in this, like the Heidi Chronicles opened that year from Wendy Washerstein. Like so many things like, but that was like our town was revived that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was also when um, musicals and play revivals were in the same category. 
So oh. Ate Miss Behaven was revived that year too. But yeah, so it's a lot of really weird fucking things. But like, um, it, ooh, ooh, we, it's, you know, it's just a thing. But this was a really weird time transitioning into the 90s, which really became became kind of a wasteland for American musical theater in our commercial settings. So like, yeah. you know, it's just, it's a wild, wild thing. But that is our, thank you for coming on board uh, for this bloody, bloody ride with me, Em. What a ride. What, what a ride. I mean, what a ride. Let me guess. You're bummed because your acceptance letter from a certain school of witchcraft and wizardry was never delivered by Owl. Or you're sitting there wishing you could find more stories about wizarding schools that are a little more inclusive and open. I was just like you. Well, that was until I discovered Saved by the Spell. From Dreamer Productions, the company behind podcasts like Saturday Morning Confidential and Exit Stage Death comes Saved by the Spell. Your spellbinding gateway taking you chapter by chapter through magical academies from across this literary reality and the next. Class starts in November where you will go inside Breakbills University for magical pedagogy from Lev Grossman's The Magicians. Saved by the Spell can be found exclusively on Dreamer Productions' Patreon feed by following the link in the show notes below. So get ready, students, to be saved by the spell. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Exit Stage Death is brought to you by Dreamer Productions. This episode was audio engineered and edited by Maddie Limerick. And our theme is Antisocial Dance Party by Brett Eagleston from the Let's Rewatch podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Stage Death Podcast. On Twitter at Stage Death Pod. And send us your favorite chilling theater stories at Stage Death Podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Patreon.com at Dreamer Productions, where your donation of $2 a month keeps quality content coming your way on your favorite podcatcher app. Join us for more chilling true stories on the next episode of Exit Stage Death.